Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. All right, I'm not going to open with a Scripture passage today, but I'm going to work some passages of Scripture into the sermon as I go. We have a general concept of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament that we see it in uh, the, the subject matter. I say it, and that when I use it, I'm not referring to the Holy Spirit. Definitely the Holy Spirit is He, but the, the, it, the subject matter. Uh, we see that in the Old Testament in a very limited sense. I, I think that's pretty obvious to anybody who has read the Bible or, or uh, studied that subject. But nevertheless, the groundwork for the Holy Spirit, as he works today in the New Testament, is definitely set through what we would call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. And I would say, to begin with, one truth that that we can probably all immediately see and agree on is the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was for the elite. Now let me explain that. There were certain individuals that we see the power of the Holy Spirit resting upon. And they did some wonderful things. As a matter of fact, just in that limited experience that people had in the Old Testament by the power of the Holy Spirit, many of them are doing more than people today standing in the place where God said, I'm going to pour it out on all flesh. And sometimes what little bit they received in the Old Testament far surpassed what we see happening today. That should cause all of us to say, hmm, something is wrong with that. If we did more with the limited exposure to the Holy Spirit than we do with the fullness of the Holy Spirit, hmm, something's wrong with that. We need to fix that, don't we? I... First of all, I want to refer to the story of Joseph, because in this story, we see reference to the power of the Holy Spirit. This may have escaped you, but let me just go back over the story briefly so I can bring you up to that. Of course, the people of God were a separated people. God wants a people, first of all. In the Old Testament, he had a people. That was the Jews. In the New Testament, he wants a people. That would be the church. He wants that. And we'll be dealing more about uh, with that concept of the Holy Spirit establishing a people with God a little bit later. But these were a separated people, a chosen people. And their rules for physical, visible apparent distinction from the rest of the world was just merely an outward sign of what was supposed to be a spiritual reality. They were supposed to be spiritually set apart for God, but they had physical things that testified to that. You read in the Old Testament, 
that their clothing was, was uh, regulated. The cloth that they used and the mixture of cloths was regulated. The manner in which the men wore their hair was regulated. Men in how they should trim their beard or, or not, or not trim their sideburns. All of these things regulated. And we make a mistake if we as New Testament Christians go back and read those old regulations and think that that has anything to do with you and me. So you have to be very careful about what you're reading that God expected of the children of Israel. But he made these things for one reason. Because upon uh, looking at one of God's people, the rest of the world immediately knew, by the way, they dressed by the way they groomed themselves, by the food that they would eat or not eat, they immediately knew that is the special, called out, distinct, separated people of Jehovah. They would know it immediately. Now, there's, there's some uh, uh, application of that, even in this day today, that we are called to come out of the world, be separate from the world, but not to ignore our existence in the world. Obviously, we're here. You can't do a whole lot about that until we're not here anymore. But there is something about living for God that should make us distinct from those things that identify uh, the world. And that's, that's a thing that's constantly in flux. It changes every year, changes every decade, it changes every generation. And the world is on the leading edge of changing things. Some things that the world does, it's just trendy, and it doesn't have any uh, moral significance or immoral significance whatsoever, but the world's just on the cutting edge of this. It has always been my personal philosophy that I don't want to be out on the cutting edge of everything the world wants to do. Now, if it happens to become uh, customary and socially acceptable uh, a little while later, then it, and it gets incorporated in society, that's another thing. But to be right out on the leading edge of everything the world wants to do puts us in a very precarious position because the world doesn't use any wisdom in what they choose in their trends. So they can get real trendy and they can start doing things and then Come to find out a little bit later, it was a stupid, foolish thing to do. So that's the reason we as Christians have to be a little more cautious, a little more deliberate, a little more slow in, in observing which direction the world is going, and is that even where we want to go? That's the reason we're cautious about that. We want to be distinct from the world. And then, of course, obviously, there's things the world does that we would not do by any means. At, at least that's the way it's theoretically, hypothetically supposed to be. When Leonard Ravenhill, the, the great preacher of the 20th century, uh, one time made the comment, I, I looked in the world and I found the church. Then I looked in the church and I found the world. As they begin to be a part of the mixture of things going on, the world, the church creeping out into the world and going beyond boundaries that have been set and uh, automatically the world creeping out into the church until there was a, a blur, no distinction. We understand that doesn't please God. 
Now, even before Moses gave commandments about these things that separated these people, it was apparent that the children of Abraham, with whom God had made a covenant, were a special people. That's even before they had these regulations about the clothing, about the food, about the things that, 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 that the, the way they groomed themselves. Still, these people were distinct. Joseph got sold into Egyptian slavery. It was all a matter of uh, family jealousy. Sibling rivalry. It's difficult to grasp how his brothers could sell little brother, sell little brother, and go home and live with themselves. Sometimes we have to just try and impose these scenarios on 21st century to even grasp what this is all about. Come on, people. Can you imagine? You have two children. One comes home because the one that came home sold the other one to somebody. You know, that doesn't work very well today. They sold him and lied about it and said he got killed. Oh, well. You know, this is, this is shocking what happened in this family. And, of course, as we know the whole story, it was a good thing that he was in Egypt whenever the uh, famine came to the world. But in Egypt, he had a, had a rough toward Joseph, a, a hero of mine, as, as he endured all, all kinds of, of uh, uh, injustices in his life. And uh, being recognized as being special and given a special place and then all of a sudden being thrown into prison and uh, just left in prison basically to rot. And then uh, one day, as I kind of fast forward through this and leave out certain details of the story, uh, Pharaoh has this dream. And as it turns out, as we understand the end of the story, the dream was a, uh, uh, a prediction, a warning about a coming famine to the land. He didn't, he didn't know that's what it was, but he has this dream, and it's bothering him, and he said, I can't understand what this means, and the cupbearer comes to him because the cupbearer was in prison at one time, and he, he met Joseph, and Joseph interpreted a dream, and the cupbearer says, hey, I know a guy that does dreams, and Pharaoh says, well, who is it? I said, well, he's in prison. He's in your prison. And Pharaoh says, go get him. Uh, they brought him out, and uh, Joseph uh, comes before the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh says, I understand you can interpret dreams. Now, this is a golden opportunity for Joseph. He's rotting in prison. And the Pharaoh says, you know, I brought you out of prison. You can interpret dreams. Would that not be a temptation to any one of us to do anything we can to interpret that dream? Take a stab at it. You've got nothing to lose. So Pharaoh says, I understand you interpret dreams. And Joseph says, not me. I can't help you. But then he says, but God that I know, he can help you. Now that speaks to the character of Joseph. Unlike a lot of the preachers we have today, that when God does a miracle through them, they take all the glory. They publish magazines about, here's what happened under our ministry. It was, it, was not, it was under God. You know, all the glory goes to God. You're nothing. It's all the, so Joseph had it really straight. I understand you interpret dreams. He could have gotten really puffed up. So, well, yeah, I do that from time to time, you know. 
He said, no, can't help you. But God can tell you what you need to know. Pharaoh says, good enough. He shared his dream. Joseph interpreted it and said, you've got, uh, you're going to have seven good years. Then you're going to have seven really bad years. And Joseph takes that opportunity to give him a bonus, just like we preachers like to do. Here's the sermon, but here's the bonus. That's what makes our sermon so long. So he tells them, here's the interpretation for the dream. But then the bonus is this. He said, furthermore, if you will appoint some men to organize the next good years and lay some stuff in store, you will survive through those years. Now, he had a plan. Just right, just right off the cuff, this guy out of prison not only interprets dreams, he's a, he's a manager. And, and Pharaoh is looking at this, and when he gets done telling them how they ought to prepare against this coming famine, Pharaoh turns to his men, and he says this, Can we find anyone like this in whom is the Spirit of God? How many times have you read that and missed the reference to the power of the Holy Spirit in Joseph? It was distinct. The people of God ought to be distinct by the power of God in them. We go to another character that you may not even recognize by name. His name was Bezalel. But he was recognized by Moses when God was telling them to build the tabernacle. They had a lot of skilled people among them. But one man named Bezalel was particularly skilled above most. And the Bible says, Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God with wisdom and understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills. And Bezalel became the mastermind behind the tabernacle and its instruction and oversaw all of the artisans and made sure everything was done just exactly right. Why? What made him stand out? Because Moses said, I can see this man has been touched by the Spirit of God. He was distinct. Among his peers. Then we have uh, several other examples. We have Gideon, who was uh, emboldened by the power of the Holy Spirit to lead this tiny troop against thousands and win this victory for God. We have Saul, who was so bashful, so shy, so backward, yet this, this big hulk of a man that was much taller than everybody else around him. In a crowd, he stood head and shoulders above everybody. But whenever they started looking for him to bestow upon him the honor of being their leader, this big strapping man goes and hides among the junk. Down there in a fetal position. I don't want to lead Israel. But the Bible says when Samuel came to anoint him and when Samuel turned to leave, God gave Saul a new heart. And this man who didn't want to lead suddenly had a heart. And as 
Samuel anointed him with the oil, the physical oil. It ran through his hair. It ran down his face. It ran through his beard. It ran down on his garments. It was an outward evidence of the anointing of the Holy Spirit on this man who had no heart, no mind, no desire to lead, but the Spirit of God came upon him, and God gave him a new heart, and he became the leader of this nation. And the sad part of the story is, is whenever he began to to depart from the leading of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit left him, he became a pathetic madman and a total failure in the end as a king. That's the difference between the presence of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit being taken away. You can be empowered to do anything for God by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you become a zero without the Holy Spirit. David was empowered throughout his life by the Holy Spirit. Whenever the power of God would come upon him and he could defend his flock against the bears and the lions and he as a lone child could go out there against Goliath. Yet in that moment of desperation after his shameful failure with Bathsheba, we find David humbled before God and crying out saying, Dear God, I know I've blown it. But one thing I ask out of desperation, one thing I ask, take not your Holy Spirit from me. He knew he needed that to survive. Do you? Would you be begging God not to take the Holy Spirit from you when you realize you're at risk of losing that relationship? And all of these examples that I've given, plus many more, we can talk about the miracles of Elijah and Elisha, that's the power of the Holy Spirit working on these people. These examples were given, plus many more, to make the people of Israel aware of a couple of things. Number one, that it is by the power of the Spirit of God that we become special people. And number two, to build a hunger and a desire in every one of them, for they lived in a society where this just didn't happen to the common man. So it began to build this this, this, uh, desire in the people to say, oh, I just wish that I I could have the power of the Spirit like Elijah had it. Wouldn't that be nice if we could have that? So here we are within the camp of of, of the children of Israel, And this special thing happens as there are these these men that are standing outside of their tent and all of a sudden they begin to prophesy. And Joshua, the, the protege of Moses, that young man learning how to take the reins and how to lead, he walks by and he hears these men. They're not in the tabernacle. They're not priests. They're just right there at their tent. And he hears them prophesying. And he goes running to Moses. He said, Moses, we've got a problem. People are out of order. And Moses responded to that after hearing Joshua's concern for men prophesying without being in the proper place at the proper time, wearing the proper garb. And Moses said, oh man, I wish that the people, the Lord's people, all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. As they began to build a hunger 
a craving, a desire when they saw the power of the Holy Spirit resting on prophets and even resting on common men. And Moses had the foresight to say, wouldn't that be nice if that kind of a power was available to everybody? It is today. It is nice. But it would be so much nicer if we were hungry and thirsty for that. Instead of just saying philosophically, well, it's available today. But are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you baptized in the Holy Spirit? Are you motivated by the Holy Spirit? Do you hunger for the presence of the Holy Spirit? Do you care when you see those things you should not see? When you do those things you do not do? When you say those things you should not say? Do you care that the Holy Holy Spirit is grieved by your actions, by your thoughts, by your words. Do you care that that's the moment when perhaps the Holy Spirit says, I'm really not welcome here. I am offended by the life and the character and the attitude of this person. Does it drive you to the point of realizing maybe if I have offended the Holy Spirit, he will lift his hand from me? Does it drive you to your face to beg to God and say, God, I failed, but one thing I cannot stand is please do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Is it that important to you? So God, realizing the hunger that is building in his people, begins to season and salt some promises of the Holy Spirit throughout the Old Testament. He tips his hand a little bit as he speaks to Isaiah. And Isaiah, by the by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, spoke to Israel and told them there's going to be some difficult times ahead. Speaking to his own people, he said there's going to be a noisy city that will lay deserted and quiet. There's going to be a fortress that was once occupied and manned, and it's going to be abandoned. The citadel and the watchtower is going to become wasteland. And things are not going to get much better until... That time when God pours out His Spirit from on high. And then He said when that happens, the desert is going to bloom like a rose. And the fertile fields are going to grow like a forest. And Isaiah spoke to them and said, I know times are tough now. But God, I promise you, is going to pour out His Spirit that's going to change the very landscape. It's going to change your heart. He will pour it out. Isaiah promised that. Then in the 44th chapter of Isaiah, he again talks about the great hope of that day of restoration as Isaiah is fascinated with this concept, this idea, this doctrine of something about the Holy Spirit of God is going to happen like they've never seen it before. In this day when he said God is going to pour waters out on dry, thirsty lands, he said streams are going to grow right in the middle of the desert. It's going to bring water out of dry ground. In that day, God said he would, quote, pour out my spirit on your children and by blessings on your descendants. And they would begin to say that this would be their different song. They would begin to say, I now belong to the Lord. In other words, it would bring their heart back to him. It says in one version, they would take the name of the Lord for themselves. But I don't know what name they were known as before. But God said, whenever I pour out my spirit out, you'll want everybody to know, I am a member of God's family. I take his name. He would have a spiritual transformation for these people. For centuries, people saw what it could mean to be filled with God's Spirit. 
but it was so limited. And so God promises an outpouring, and he says the scope will be unlimited. And as we read from our passage last week, the promise is to, your, to you, to your children, it's to all that are afar off, and even, even as many as the Lord our God shall call, without restriction, available to everybody, every nation, every generation, every race, every tongue, every people. So we go to the book of Acts, point to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament for the common person, the Old Testament for the elite, but the promise that one day the Holy Spirit is going to be for the common person. We find in the book of Acts, there in the beginning of that book, Jesus is standing there with his disciples and having a last-minute conversation with them. And he says, don't leave Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Just just stay right here until it happens. Don't leave. And the first thing that the disciples said was, will you at this time restore your kingdom? Now, if there was ever a case of ADD in the Bible... This had to be it. He just got through telling them, focus, focus, stay in Jerusalem until you be endued with power. And they said, you going to set up your kingdom yet? They're not following the line of thought. They're on something else entirely. And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. That's kind of a mild little backhanded slap. Would you pay attention? Watch my lips. And he directs them back to the issue at hand. He said, I, I'm not going to talk about when, when this is going to happen. I want to talk about the Holy Spirit. Listen to me. You will receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you will be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And this statement, this promise of power had this very special meaning that he did not want his disciples to miss because they knew their Hebrew scriptures. They knew the old stories. And he said, you're just right here on the brink. You are on the verge. Don't leave Jerusalem until you see this happen. You will be endued with power from on high. And now he should have caught their attention. In other words, it was almost more than they could fathom. He was promising them the same power that they heard of, that they read about in the Old Testament. He was promising the same thing in their lives. This endowment of power had historically been such a rare thing, reserved for just certain people, reserved for just special leaders in history. And now he's saying, I'm going to pour it out on you. Now, we've seen many instances of things that were once available only for the wealthy and how excited the common man gets when it finally becomes available to us. You've seen that all your life, haven't you? The first computers they had, they were so expensive. Nobody 
could really afford one. Then they begin to get them down in size and, and make them available for the common man. Computers that used to fill entire rooms, multiple rooms in buildings, now you have a computer in your pocket that is more powerful than that was as it becomes available to the common man. Uh, how many remember the day that Henry Ford invented the... <laughs> How many of you have heard the story? <laughs> I thought I'd get a whole lot more hands on that one. Model A. And it was very expensive because he had not yet perfected the assembly line. And then it dawned on him, if we could just get a group of people to stand in stations and let this thing go down the line, they can slap a part on and it went from being a car that only the wealthy could afford, $1,000. People only made $1,000 a year in those days. It's like you today. If, if, if you have a salary, some of you, of $50,000, you're going to go out and buy a $50,000 car, your wife's going to have something to say about that. Notice how I uh, use the genders appropriately. I didn't accuse the wife of going out and doing that. Then he, he, he got the assembly line. And he quit painting them all these custom colors. And he said, it comes in any color you want as long as it's black. And he started cranking out these cars for $250 a piece. The common man gets it. Oh, the world is excited. Now it's not just for the wealthy. You know, in the 1960s, I remember watching this obscure little te television show called uh, Burke's Law. And th this man rode around in this sh uh, chauffeur-driven Rolls Royce. Gene Berry was the name of the man that starred in that. And I don't remember exactly the plot. It was some sort of uh, re uh, resolving crime and stuff. I was too young to understand. But I remember him riding around in this, this Rolls Royce that in those days, in the 1960s, he had a TV in that Rolls Royce. He had a telephone in that Rolls Royce. And I looked at that and I said, that is so cool. Mom, Dad, we need to get a telephone for a car. We can't do that. Only rich people do that. Now every one of you have got a phone. You've got four phones in every car, one for every passenger. Because now it's become something for the common man. And so when Jesus is talking to them, but you shall receive power, he was talking about something that only the elite had. But it's getting ready to come to the common man. And he was telling them, as he was telling them about this power that's going to come, here's what the disciples were thinking. You mean we're going to be like Joshua? We're going to be like Moses? The spirit that rested on David can rest on us. 
And Christ is saying, yes, and you'll be like Deborah, and you'll be like Miriam, and you'll be like Gideon, and you'll be like Elijah, and you'll be like Elisha, because what was reserved only for the least, he said, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh. It's going to happen for everybody. Now they're interested. They're interested enough, they actually stayed in Jerusalem. We talk a lot about the purpose, the work of the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. We generally always get over to the endowment with power in Acts to be witnesses. But the Holy Spirit during this era does so much more. He has a huge portfolio. His job description, far beyond what we usually cover. But Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he's going to be busy, well, convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And under those things come so many things the Holy Spirit is doing. But he's working constantly. One of the things, major things the Holy Spirit does in this age, assigned by God, is he fashions, forms, and oversees a people for God. That's his job, to bring together a people for God and manage the people for God. I told you, he, God had a people in the Old Testament. God always has to have a people. That's what he wants. It's the Holy Spirit that makes that happen. It was in the Old Testament, what we have is God called Abraham out of the land of God as heathen people and chose him to be a father of a nation. And God would call that nation his people. So you see, membership in the people of God in the Old Testament didn't have anything to do with the spiritual experience. You were born into it, period. Born of Abraham, you were the people of God. Now God wanted them to be spiritually right. Many times they weren't, but this was still the people of God. Membership in the favored group known as God's people today is no longer based on heritage, and I think people have, been, have failed to get that memo. Because I have talked to people many times about their salvation, and there's been times when I've asked people, are you a Christian? You know what they have told me? Honest to goodness. If I'm lying, I'm dying. They would say, yes. I said, how do you know that you're a Christian? And they would say, my grandmother was a Christian. Now, they're in the wrong testament. You could say, I was born into this. I can trace my life back to Abraham, my father and his father and his father and his father. They're in the wrong testament. Are you a Christian? My grandmother was a wonderful Christian. So you're all going to heaven? Is that the way it is? But in the New Testament, you're not just born into it in the flesh. You're born into it in the Spirit. And you can't tell me how great of a Christian your mother was or your grandmother was, your grandfather was and, and, and have anything to do with your salvation. You have to tell me because I was born again into the kingdom by the power of the Spirit through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how you know you're a Christian. Are you a Christian? Well, I go to church and hang out with people who call themselves Christians. It's not good enough. 
Have you been washed in the blood? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Have you made Him Lord of your life? Do you wake up every day with an intent to say, I I want my life to glorify Jesus today? See, membership today is a a one-at-a-time thing. It's not a national thing. You can't belong to West Side Assembly of God and think you're going to heaven. You can't just belong to a family that prays around their meals and think you're going to heaven. It's an individual thing, and the Holy Spirit superintends that. He oversees that. He convicts people to bring them in, to make them realize if you continue to live like you live, if you continue to talk the vulgar talk like you continue to talk and think the filthy thoughts like you continue to talk, you're not going to make it. You're just not going to make it. You can't make it just because you put your time into church. You have to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's job. To convince you, to convict you, to bring you to salvation in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is overseeing the growth of the people of God under the framework of the New Testament. And he's ever establishing this people of God here on earth. In the, Holy, in the Old Testament, we don't see him seeking out people to bring them to God. That's his New Testament job. The next thing he does is the Spirit is vitally instrumental in getting you plugged in. Now I'm just narrowing down this first point, just getting it more specific now. He plays that major role in people being invited into the family of God. First of all, the hearing of the gospel. There has to be a gospel that they can hear, right? You think the Holy Spirit's involved in that? You bet he is. We have truth which must be declared. But Paul very clearly said, I don't come to you with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but I come to you with the demonstration of the Holy Spirit. See, he's involved in the proclamation of the word, the good news. So the Holy Spirit is on the sending end, the delivery end. Then we read the Thessalonians' reception of the word was accompanied by much affliction and by the Holy Spirit. It's by the Holy Spirit that we receive that word that is being delivered by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is working on both ends. He's working to make sure it's delivered and he's working to make sure it is received. Number two, we have the revelation by the Holy Spirit. Paul repeatedly talks about the content of his message being a revelation by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit revealing things that were formerly hidden, things which remain to those who have not the Spirit. And it brings a whole new perspective to this familiar passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul writes this, and you've read it before, but I don't think you've read it in the context of the Holy Spirit for your life. Paul says, however it is written, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things that God has revealed to us by his Spirit. And we've read that in in the context of uh, the things that God has prepared for those that love him. You know, heaven, eternity, what in the Spirit will... Paul says there is so much about God that we can only grasp as they are revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. Let's continue reading. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them? In the same one way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And what we have received is not the Spirit of the world, 
but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Then the Spirit of faith. How many of you remember having a salvation experience that was a powerful emotional experience for you? Many people did. Many people, when it came to that point where they finally gave the heart and life to Jesus Christ, they may have been down here at an altar. They may have been called forward on the third verse of just as I am without one plea. But finally, when they broke, they came down. They knelt down. They blubbered and snotted all over the place. Then they got saved. And they'll never forget that time. But then some of you, you just kind of woke up one day and decided to serve Jesus. And that's good, too. For some of us, we just remember that, that, that time when we came to that saving knowledge and, and how it just radically turned us inside out. So we ask that person that's saved to get up from the altar. I mean, the ladies, I, I mean, there's no makeup left. It's all... Mascara's shot. How do you feel? Oh, I feel great. And the very first thing we have to tell them is, it doesn't matter how you feel. (laughs) I'm glad you feel good. But remember one thing, it don't matter how you feel. Because tomorrow you may not. We have to make them understand, as good as you feel today, Your salvation is not based on how you feel. Because you might feel rotten next week, next month, next year. You might have more questions than God is answering in your life. But no one thing, no one thing that you know whom you have believed, you're persuaded He is able to keep that which you committed unto Him against that day. Don't make any mistake about it. Your feelings are going to go up and down. But you are saved by faith, not by feeling. Paul says that the gift of the Spirit, which we're talking about salvation, we're talking about uh, uh, any, any, any endowment of power, the gift of the Spirit comes through faith. Now, mostly he's talking about salvation at this point. The gift of the Holy Spirit comes by faith. And then Paul goes on a little bit later and says, when you get the Holy Spirit, he'll give you the gift of faith. And you're saying, what's with that? First of all, the gift of the Spirit comes by faith and then you get the Holy Spirit, and then it gives you faith. And you say, that sounds like it's contradictory. I don't understand how we have faith to get the Holy Spirit, and then he gives us faith, because it's different kinds of faith. He's talking about saving faith, because you just have to turn loose of everything that logically tells you this just isn't going to work. It's not for you. You don't need this. You can get along by yourself, that there's no such thing as a God, no such thing as a forgiveness of sin, and you just got to come to the point where you reach out against all of those objections from the belly of hell, and you say, you know what? I'm going to press through, and I'm going to ask Jesus Christ to come into my heart. You have taken a step of faith. And then after you take that step of faith, then the Holy Spirit begins to give you faith for the walk. Because it's not going to be easy. So it's like a little bit of starter fluid to get you going. But then he gives you a tank of gas when you've got it cranked. The Spirit's role in conversion. Paul says, I'd like you to learn just one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you trying now to finish by the means of the flesh? It could not be more clear. 
But the Holy Spirit plays this vital role in bringing people to salvation. And then the final point for today. The Holy Spirit then becomes the identity marker for our Christianity. People love to quote that verse that uh, by... By this shall you know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And as though that is the final word, the only word on the subject. So they make this big deal out of if we love one another, then people will know that we are his disciples. You know, there's a lot of other things to be considered in how people know that we are Christ's disciples. I can show you cults around the world that love one another. That doesn't make them disciples of Jesus Christ. So a lot of social civic organizations, they love one another. They get drunk together, do all, they love one another. Then make them disciples of Jesus Christ. For one thing, I think one of the things that marks us, at least it marked Paul, he said, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to have some battle scars that will be a testimony to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. But there's something else as well. Gordon Fee tells the story of Charlemagne, who was the king of the Franks. He became a Christian. And being the powerful king that he was, he then mandated, everybody in my kingdom is going to be a Christian and get baptized. So they did. They got in line. Everybody became a Christian, at least They obeyed what the king said they had to do. And you and I know there's little doubt this did not guarantee everybody was going to heaven. They just did it because the king said so. Baptism does not guarantee a person is a Christian. And maybe maybe we can trace history back to that time when so many people say, uh, it's it's again like, why are you a Christian? Because my grandmother went to church. Why are you a Christian? Because I got baptized when I was two years old. There's a lot of things. How do you know? How do you really know? It's because it's not, it's not baptism. But Paul repeatedly delineates the believer from the unbeliever by showing that the believer has the Spirit and the unbeliever does not have the Spirit. And you can turn to the 8th chapter of Romans and see one of the most beautiful chapters embracing that entire concept as he continues to contrast the carnal unbeliever with the spirit-led believer. And then Paul drives it home in the ninth verse of the eighth chapter when he says this, and this ought to shock you, this ought to shake you. If anyone does not have the spirit, that person does not belong to Christ at all. Every born-again believer has the spirit of God. But not every person who calls themselves Christian has the Spirit of God. So Paul says, let's have a division of the house. If you've been born again, you will have the Spirit of God. If you have the Spirit of God, you are His. But if you do not have the Spirit of God, you have not been born again. Which means the Holy Spirit is making a people and superintending the fashioning of those people. And encouraging them, having accepted Christ, there has to be a change in your life, the way you think, the way you act, 
in the way you talk. So in, in much the same way that God instructed the children of Israel to distinguish themselves from the rest of the godless world in their manner of dress, in the manner of their, their grooming, in the manner of the food they ate, so does the Holy Spirit set God's people apart today in the way that they live. They do not cater to the flesh. They are led by the Spirit, for the two are contradictory. They cannot abide in the same person. You cannot be led by the Spirit and led by the flesh. Keep that in mind, people. If you take nothing else from this sermon today, take this with you. You cannot cater to the flesh and be led by the Spirit because the Spirit does not agree with what the flesh wants. If you are following the flesh, you are not following the Holy Spirit. If we're carnal, we're not spiritual. They're incompatible. If we're carnal, we do not have the Spirit. If we do not have the Spirit, we do not belong to Christ. The Spirit is our identity in Jesus Christ. Bow your heads.